So John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. This is God's word. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word. This section today is is all about finding and following. It's all about people who find the Messiah and then they follow him and then they want to find others who will follow the Messiah. The themes of finding and following can really be found almost across almost every verse if you carefully read through, whether it is seeking, seeing, beholding, following, coming, going, as you read through this passage, these themes are all over and they are all centered on the revelation of God in Jesus. And so the way I want to look at this passage today is through the lens of three discoveries two primary instances of disciples making disciples and then one bold declaration so three discoveries two times disciples make disciples and one bold declaration if we jump straight into it from verse 35 this is on the back end of the passage we went over last week of the testimony of john the baptist where we remember john the baptist's life is all about preparing the way for the messiah He is totally sold out for the Messiah to come. And we read, he's just standing around with two of his disciples in verse 35. And then he sees Jesus walking by and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And immediately his two disciples follow Jesus. Now, some some people might read that and think, well, they're pretty fickle disciples with one guy. And then the moment they see someone better, they just wander off. Maybe they'll just wander off to another Messiah figure after that. 
I mean, all John the Baptist has to say is, oh, the Lamb of God, and then immediately they're off. All of their loyalty to John the Baptist is gone. But of course, this is the total opposite. This actually demonstrates that these two disciples are well-trained, noble disciples of John the Baptist, because John the Baptist's life and ministry is all about the Messiah, preparing the way for the Messiah. So when the Messiah comes, you follow him. It's hard to imagine John the Baptist being frustrated, lost two of my followers to Jesus. He's obviously thrilled. Of course you want to go follow the Messiah. Now this sets the scene for the first of our three discoveries. So if we take that as the opening scene, John the Baptist again pointing to how wonderful the Messiah is, hoping that everyone goes to follow him, look at him, and John the Baptist can just um, slowly decrease as the Messiah increases. That's the scene. And then we come across the first of our three discoveries. So the two disciples who leave John the Baptist to go follow Jesus, they start following him. Jesus turns around and says, what are you seeking? Which just as a side point to begin, that's always a helpful question for all of us to consider who would say we are followers of Jesus. What is it that we are seeking? Are we seeking recognition? Some sort of sense of community that everyone else in the world wants? Are we seeking material good? that Jesus as sort of a cosmic genie can provide for us. It's a helpful thing to remember, to have the forefront of our, at, at our minds as we are following Jesus. What is it that we are seeking? And if it is anything less than Jesus and nothing else, then we're probably in danger. Just as a side point, to come back in, the disciples who are starting to follow Jesus, they respond to his question and they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Jesus says, come and you will see. So they come and they stay with him. And then from verse 40, we read, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother. And he then goes to Simon and he says in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. That's quite a loaded term. The word Messiah is uh, a relatively common word used throughout the Old Testament, but has broad meaning used really to describe anyone who is anointed. That's literally the core of the word anointed uh, for service. So anyone who had been ordained by God for service. So the priests were anointed. Remember the story of David and Saul. David doesn't want to lay a hand on Saul because he recognizes that he is the anointed one of God because God had chose him for that purpose. But for all of these ranges of someone who had the word is Mashiach, where we get Messiah, who had been anointed, for all these broad ranges, there was this trajectory that was pointing toward the Messiah, the promised anointed one. We just finished going through Daniel a while ago. You remember in Daniel 9, part of the promise in Daniel 9, where God answers Daniel's prayer, is that a Messiah would come and he would be linked to these themes of bringing in everlasting righteousness, atoning for iniquity, finishing the transgression, and there would be this Messiah, the Messiah who would come. So this is the discovery of Andrew here, the Messiah. And just to get a, a weight of this, just imagine, if you will, 
Imagine being framed for something, something really terrible that meant that you were sentenced to life in prison and you had to leave your family. Your family was gone and their livelihood was dependent upon your provision. So they were out on the street. You knew that you were framed and you knew that there was one person who had all of the evidence to prove without doubt that you were innocent, but he was gone. You hadn't heard from him. He's long gone and years and years went by and your family is struggling to provide. You're locked up in prison. And then imagine one day someone coming and saying, we've found him. We've found the one who has all of the evidence to restore everything. You're free. He's here. Now, that's just a tiny appetizer of the full banquet of weight that we would have here when Andrew comes to Peter and says, we've found the Messiah. The whole hopes of Israel in this one. We've found him. He's here. This is our first discovery. We have found the Messiah. The second discovery that we have here after we read of Andrew's discovery coming to Peter. We then have Philip entering the story. This is from verse 43. We read the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip drops everything and follows Jesus. And then immediately in verse 45, we read Philip found Nathanael. Now, Nathanael is likely Bartholomew, the other gospels refer to as Bartholomew. It's likely that he is because in all of the other gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark and Luke, Philip is usually joined with Bartholomew and it's very common for disciples to have another name. Uh, it's likely here that Nathaniel is Bartholomew. So Philip finds Nathaniel or Bartholomew and he says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So this is the discovery. We have found him in whom all of the law and the prophets, which is another way of saying all of the scriptures, often law and prophets are used to summarize that. So Jesus says, I have not come to abolish uh, the law, but to fill it. And in the context, he says of the law and the prophets, they all point to me. You remember he's on the road to Emmaus and he opens up the scriptures to the disciples. And he clearly, Luke records it as he points to the law and the prophets to show that it was pointing to him. So the law and the prophets is another way of saying the fullness of, of the scriptures. And the discovery was that the very words of God, which had been entrusted to the Jewish people, the holy words of God from Abraham to Moses to David, they had all been pointing to Jesus. And this is Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee, the, the carpenter's son, an obscure place. And everything is pointing to him, beginning from God's promise in Genesis 3 to provide a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head to God's promise in Deuteronomy 18 to raise up another prophet like Moses. It was all pointing to Jesus. This humble man from Galilee. 
It's amazing to think the 39 books of the Old Testament written by more than 20 authors spanning over a thousand years are completely consistent in their trajectory toward Jesus as the Messiah. It is an incredible thing. So that's the second discovery. He's the one. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, is the one all of our scriptures are pointing to. And in this moment in history, he's here. He's walking on earth. This leads us to our third discovery after Philip makes his discovery and he introduces Nathaniel. Nathaniel is confronted with the all-knowing Jesus. So notice that from verse 46 on Nathaniel, um, after responding to Philip, he has a, a bit of skepticism about him and says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is all the way above Galilee. Now, we know that the Jewish people really despise Samaria. Galilee's beyond Samaria. Like, it's north of north. It's an obscure place. And so it's normal for people in a Jewish tradition to say, why would anything good come out of there? I'm reluctant to use any equivalents in Canberra, but you might be able to insert the suburb or area and think, how can anything good come out of there? Imagining Jesus, the Messiah, coming out of insert whatever town you're thinking of. This skeptical Nathaniel, he comes to Jesus and Jesus says to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, I think there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff on why he says that. Think of Israel as the name of Jacob, Jacob meaning deceiver. And Jesus comes to him and says, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. There's quite some interesting stuff in there, which is probably for another time. What we need to focus on here is that Jesus says this to clearly show to Nathaniel that he knows him. He knows him in an intimate way. He knows Nathaniel in a way that no one else has ever known Nathaniel. Not even that Nathaniel knows himself. So Nathaniel's response when Jesus gives that statement is to say, how do you know me? He knows something is going on. And Jesus says to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And this is where Nathaniel makes his discovery, where he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, we have to make sense of this. It seems a bit odd initially as you read this to think that's strange. All it takes for Nathaniel to realize that Jesus is the Messiah is that Jesus saw him under a tree. So we probably shouldn't have this idea of Jesus kind of seeing Nathaniel like 50 or 100 meters off and Jesus just has impeccable eyesight. Nathaniel maybe has less impeccable eyesight, so can't see him. And he's astounded. How could you see me from that far away? That's obviously not the point here. This is clearly referring to something more. Nathaniel feels the penetration of an all-knowing being. He feels the penetration of an all-knowing being who knows him. It's also possible that there's use, the use of fig tree is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, sometimes to refer to the home. There's a lot of other um, theories that commentators bring up. But what we can clearly see is that Jesus knows Nathaniel in a way that penetrates Nathaniel's heart, strips him bare. And Nathaniel says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
I think this is an example of what John will go on to say in the end of chapter two, where he says, Jesus didn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew all people. He didn't need anyone to bear witness about man because he knew what was in man. He knew exactly what was in every single person. He is God in the flesh, all knowing. And here Nathaniel is confronted by this. To be confronted by someone who truly knows our inner soul is transformative. It is incredible. And it should give us an expectation and a fear for that moment we stand before the living God and give an account for our life and stand in his presence. And what an awesome thing that will be. So Nathaniel, when confronted with this all-knowing Jesus, he flips from a bit of a blind skeptic early on, thinking that nothing good can come out of Galilee, to then someone who has seen the light. He makes a bold declaration. His wonderful discovery is that Jesus is the King of Israel and the Son of God, or more precisely, that the King of Israel is none other than God's Son. That's the promised King. That's the Davidic King who was promised Jesus, the Son of God, to come and rule. He's here. This is the expectation of Psalm 2, that God's own Son would rule the nations with a rod of iron. So he comes to rule his chosen people, Israel. And Nathaniel, upon his encounter with Jesus, immediately realizes this is our King. Our King, he's here, Jesus, God's own Son. So just to summarize these three discoveries, they discover that the Messiah has been found. They discover that the Messiah is the one whom all of the law and prophets pointed to, and he is Jesus, the son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth. And he is also God's very own son who will rule his people as the promised king. Now, in the midst of these three discoveries, there are two main instances we have of disciples making disciples. The first instance we have is around uh, verse 41, where we read of Andrew coming to Simon. This is after they've come uh, and they have encountered Jesus. And then we read from verse 41 of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus with Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first, now that's as a matter of priority, that word there, he of first priority found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Andrew who finds, who discovers who Jesus is, begins following him. And then the first thing he wants to do is to find another one who will follow the Messiah. The second instance is where Philip finds Nathanael around verse 45, where Philip is confronted by Jesus. And he has his discovery. And so he comes to Nathanael and says, you have to come. And, and, and know this one. He's the one whom the law and the prophets are pointing to. So this is where we clearly see these themes of finding and following and then finding more people who will follow. And this is the reality for those who have come before Jesus and who have discovered that he is the Christ. This is the simple, somewhat uncomfortable reality for us who like to stay in our comfort zone this is the reality that those who truly discover Jesus seek to find others 
who will discover that Jesus is the Christ. It's the natural response. I must tell someone about this. I mean, to see the majesty of Christ, to discover him in this way and to not have that desire is kind of like being a scientist and coming across a cure for cancer and not just a particular cancer, but in some providential way, a cure for all cancers, meditating upon it for a bit in the lab and then thinking, well, I'll clock out now, I'll go home and watch some TV. And then coming back to the lab the next week and looking at your discovery again, meditating upon it for a bit, and then heading back home to binge some Netflix. It's absurd. If you find the cure, you will tell someone. If you don't, it either says that you simply don't believe that what you have found is true, or there's something else grossly wrong. And that's the reality that we have to be confronted with. And part of the theme we see here in this passage, and then particularly through books like Acts, where by far one of the dominant themes of the early disciples who were empowered by the Holy Spirit is one of faithful witnessing that comes from both an excitement, but an urgency and a duty to testify to the truth that they have just encountered that Jesus is the Christ and he was resurrected and all must come to know him. The ones who truly discover Jesus find others to then discover Jesus. And this is at the core of the purpose of the church, to make disciples of all the nations. And here we see some of the first instances of followers finding other followers, which is another way of saying disciples making disciples. Now, we should understand discipleship just very quickly. There are two main aspects, if we reduce it down, of discipleship. One is of ongoing discipleship, which is where existing disciples like you and me, those who have professed to follow Jesus and who are in a a pattern in their life of following Jesus, the church functions to facilitate the ongoing discipleship, which discipleship is like learning. The word literally means learning or following as a learner. And we continue to stir one another on within the authority of the church to facilitate our discipleship because the making disciples of all nations is necessarily tied to then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Now, that doesn't happen across a one-day seminar. That happens across a lifetime. So there's this ongoing act of discipleship. But the second aspect of it, the one that we focus on today, is this initial making of disciples. That is the initial conversion of someone who turns away from a life of sin and turns to follow Jesus, which is repentance. And they are then signed up to their lifetime apprenticeship. And there's that initial act of making a disciple. As the word goes out and faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, people repent, they turn to follow Jesus. They are made a disciple and they are then following this lifelong pattern of discipleship. And this is the pattern that I think we just get a little glimpse of here. People who are illuminated to the wonder of Christ, having a response, an initial reaction, almost like a gut reaction to tell someone. We must tell someone about this. Now, sometimes we hear this with a bit of a guilty 
conscience and kind of think, well, I, I have to be telling someone about Jesus or I'm less of a Christian. Now, I don't actually think it's such a bad idea if we feel a little bit of guilt over our apathy toward testifying of Christ. I think sometimes that's a good thing. If we never tell anyone, we probably should feel a bit guilty. There's something wrong. There's something going on there. Now, of course, evangelism looks different uh, from person to person, but there's something wrong if we are not in some way testifying to Christ. But that aside, I don't believe that guilt actually drives healthy evangelism, nor do I think that that's part of the main point of this passage here. It's not like we should be developing a method of evangelism from this passage. Part of the point of this is really to see a bunch of average men, some of whom were just fishermen, not that fishermen is less of an occupation, but just your average, your average punters off the street who become awestruck as the Christ is revealed to them. Their hearts become gripped. They're in the presence of the living God. And it sparks a desire to tell those around them about Jesus. These followers clearly aren't moved out of guilt. They're not moved out of guilt. They have been struck by the reality of who Jesus is. It's like a spontaneous overflow of joy in them. I must tell someone. So the starting point for us in making disciples is to go deeper in our understanding of who Jesus is. That's the purpose, that we would grow deeper as disciples to know who the Christ is, to saturate ourselves with the wonder and majesty of Christ, that that spontaneous overflow becomes a spontaneous overflow. The wonderful declarations from the discoveries that are made here in this passage become the fuel for this simple task of telling someone else about Jesus. Wow, come and follow this Messiah and our lives ought to follow a similar pattern, discovering more about who Jesus is and then being compelled out of awe and joy to share that with others. Now, these accounts are leading toward a climax. These three discoveries, these two instances of disciples making disciples, they're leading toward the climax that we have in verse 51, where after Nathanael has his moment of revelation, before Jesus, Jesus says to him, do you simply believe because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree? Is that why you believe? Because I say to you, you will see something far greater than this. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And this is an incredible statement from Jesus. This is one of the fundamental discoveries that all followers of Jesus must make. Jesus is saying that he is the place where all must encounter the living God. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. He has brought the house of God to earth in himself. Now, to see this, we have to look at Genesis 28, which Ben read out earlier. In Genesis 28, we have Jacob being sent out initially to find a wife. And on his journey, he just stops somewhere and falls asleep and has a dream. And in the dream, he sees a ladder and the ladder connects from heaven to earth. And he sees these angels ascending and descending on it. 
and the Lord himself is standing above it or standing beside it. And in that dream, in that moment, the Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. And God goes on then to reaffirm the promises that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac and to now Jacob. And Jacob's reaction is to say, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. Surely the Lord is here in this place and he is filled with terror and he says, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. And then the place is renamed to Bethel, which means the house of God. Because Jacob says, wow, I've encountered God here. This is the place where we encounter the living God. So the picture we have is of this connection between heaven and earth. The bridge coming down. It wasn't that people were ever going to ascend up to God. It was that he was going to condescend and make a way for the God of heaven and earth to come down. Now, Jesus comes, if we come back to John, and he says, Nathaniel, you want to see something great. You're going to see this. But the ladder isn't going to be in a physical location of Bethel. It's on the Son of Man. I am the gate of heaven. I am the place you encounter the living God, for I am God in the flesh. Remember the Son of Man term used in Daniel 7 that we went through and the Son of Man becomes one of Jesus's favorite terms to refer to himself through the Gospels. In Daniel 7, we have this figure who comes to the Ancient of Days and receives dominion, glory and a kingdom where all peoples, nations and languages would serve him. This is the Son of Man and Jesus says, I am he. I'm the Son of Man. And that ladder that bridges heaven and earth, that happened at Bethel, at the house of God, the place where one encounters God, it's on me. I am the gate of heaven. Jesus is saying that he brings the house of God. He is the place where one encounters God, where God reveals his promises to his people. It's an astounding claim because Jesus is removing all time and location barriers. You don't go to a physical place like Bethel. It's the same idea in John 4, where Jesus says, you don't go to a mountain to worship. There's no physical place. You worship in spirit and truth. Jesus has removed every time and location barrier where the place you encounter God is in the Son of Man, in God himself. God has come down to us. And how does this primarily reveal itself now? It is through the church. It is through the church. And this is how all of this is tied together. Because we know the Son of Man isn't walking on earth anymore. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has commissioned his church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be the vessel that would continue the ongoing witnessing task that Jesus demonstrated for us in his earthly ministry. He ascends to the Father commissions his church empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue in that witnessing task so that as we spread out, we proclaim 
Christ. We proclaim that the way to encounter God is in Jesus because Jesus is God. He is the entrance point to knowing the God of heaven and earth. And just if you weren't sold by that, Jesus very clearly establishes that his presence and witness remain with the church. Think of Matthew 18 in that passage on church discipline. That's the passage where uh, Jesus says, where two or more gather there, I'm in the midst. And usually people rip that out of its context and try and give this sort of special idea that we're, wherever two or more in more of a mystical way. But of course, it's in the context of church discipline, where in Matthew 18, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. It's him basically saying, whatever you do, where you as the church gather, it's as good as done in heaven. There is a connection now. My authority, my presence is in the church. We know this as well because when Jesus confronts Saul, he identifies so closely with the church that he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with his church. We are his body. He is the head. He is present where two or more gather under godly authority that he is commissioned. He is present. So as we go out, as we go out with the task of making this known, we are proclaiming the same thing that Jesus is saying. Here is how you know the living God. Turn away from your life of sin. Trust in Jesus. God has made himself known in Jesus Christ. So we follow Jesus and we then make followers of Jesus. And this must all be undergirded by the kind of discoveries that we see here, seeing the wonder of Jesus as the Christ, seeing that he is the one in whom all of the law and prophets point to. He is the son of God, the king of Israel. He is the one in whom we come to encounter the living God who transcends all time and location. To think right now that there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of congregations gathering around this time and the same Christ is present in all of those churches. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. Jesus has commissioned us as the church to faithfully bear witness to him so that others would be brought in following a similar pattern of discovering Christ, being ravished by his majesty and then Deciding to, follow, deciding to find others who will follow Jesus and who will then discover the same riches of Christ that we come to know whenever we gather. It's a really simple thing. Often we try and complicate discipleship and evangelism and the purpose of the church. There is a beautiful simplicity in that we are called to gather faithfully, to stir each other on, to love and good works, to come to know the majesty and wonder of Jesus more and more, and to trust that as we go out and faithfully bear witness, it is the Spirit of God who must bring people to life. We're not going out to try and rebirth someone ourselves. We are just faithfully going out, remembering that the new birth is entirely in the Lord's hands. There is a simplicity to our task. Our task is to faithfully follow what God in Jesus has commissioned us to do, which is to make disciples, to find others who will follow him, that they would likewise discover the true riches of Christ.